0: Thank you, Pastor Mike. All right, give me just a moment to get the screen adjusted to mine. All right. Um, so let me let me start with <clears throat> kind of a running start and kind of give you an indication of where we're going next week. <clears throat> we have our um, anniversary, our fifteenth anniversary. It is. Um, Really amazing to me, just to, to view back over the years and see what God has done. A lot of um, sweet faces that you forgot were part of our church and have moved away. It's fun to look back through the pictures. I think right now Roman has narrowed it down to 400 pictures. So uh, we, we, want, we want you all to be here next Sunday night if you can be. What we're going to do is we're going to set up tables in here, have a really relaxed and enjoyable dinner, and then I'll walk through some of those slides. There's really some sweet stories of God's grace, And even watching that and seeing some of the people who've um, drifted into sin and walked away from Savior reminds me to pastor um, with the Lord's grace to pursue people and to, to not take lightly the responsibility of being in church with these people because in some ways when I see that people have wandered from the faith, I'm reminded that that might be some of us. And the way the Lord keeps us is by faithful leaders, ministers, servants within the church, friends, and church members pursuing one another with the grace of Christ. And so it's a little bit sobering to look back through some of those pictures and see people where I feel like the Lord might be pricking my heart saying, you need to be faithful, Mark. Shepherding is not a task to take lightly, and neither is church membership and participation in the body of Christ. But there's stories that are just amazing that God has... um, clearly been at work and been kind and redeemed and saved and brought people into his eternal grace through the ministry of people here at our church. It's really fun to see those pictures too, along with all the goofy ones. You know, Christmas programs and Vacation Bible Schools always are a treasure trove of adults looking dumb. So hopefully you'll really enjoy some of those things. and I think it'll be an encouragement to you and hopefully energize you for the, for the next handful of years that the Lord has for your ministry and for your opportunity to partner with other people here at Crossway as we gather um, under the banner of the Lord. Okay, <clears throat> so what I want to do today, maybe leaning into a little bit of the fact that we're still kind of technically in that New Year's window where you're hopefully making resolutions. Maybe already you're like, man, I was going to read my Bible every day and I missed Thursday. <laughs> it's like, it's only about a week and it's, it's really hard to, to establish new discipline. So don't not do that. Don't fail to, to establish new disciplines just because you trip within the first couple weeks. Get up, keep at it. I really think that Bible knowledge, Bible study, the work of Scripture study is one of the uh, challenges that we have pursuing God's grace is, is we are woefully um, dissatisfied with Scripture. And frankly, it often lies like the ingredients in our pantry. They require a little bit of work to assemble into a good meal. And so we just want to eat frozen burritos. And that is neither nutritious nor wise. Spiritually, in the metaphor, nor really. Um, I think this is a frozen burrito person. And this, this, this I think, has been edited significantly. I saw some um, ways in which she has become more mainstream in her communication. But I don't think she's changed anything. I think she's just taken off the simple ways in which she can be identified as showing dissatisfaction with scripture but i want you to listen to this this is in the front front material of her work she has a 365 day devotional called jesus calling this is um, roman numeral 12 and that she says i began to wonder if i could change my prayer times from monologue to dialogue like you catch that (laughs) like so i just talked to god and it was like talking to nobody And so I wanted to have a conversation, is really what you're saying, right? I've been writing in a prayer journal for many years, but this was a one-way communication. Like I want to tear my hair out when I hear that, and I don't have much left. I did all the talking. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God might be uh, wanting to communicate to me on a given day. I decided to, quote, listen with pen in hand, writing down whatever I heard in my mind. My journals thus changed from monologue to dialogue. This new way of communicating with God became the high point of my day. Of course, I knew my writings were not inspired, as only Scripture is, but they, they were helping me to grow closer to God. Um, the theologian in me just threw up a little. Like, that is so troubling. But I think that speaks to the issue in our churches today, that, that we are dissatisfied with what God has called us to. We want something different. We want something more. And we're essentially... Without criticizing the Bible, we are essentially saying, what? It's not enough. And I think really what we are, and I want to break it down a little bit more maybe. I've done this, done this recently with the idea of faith. We want to experience in a sensory way what it means to commune with God. Uh, we, we want to hear. We want to feel. We want to... We want to in some way translate our relationship with God from the realm of faith that is non-experiential but trust in God's revealed word that he has given to us and move it into the realm of experience so that faith and trust in God moves to experiential validation. Now that is something God did give to the New Testament church early in its founding, that first generation in order to confirm but even jesus says something like this to thomas blessed are the blessed are you because you believed blessed are those who right right so he he, he encourages thomas who says my lord my god and he, he says you know this is good but it's better it's superior to do this without seeing what's jesus point An inferior faith requires experience. I think I misquoted that. I think he said, blessed are you, but I don't think he actually says that first blessed. He's like, this is good, Thomas, but blessed are, and there's a contrast there, a superior contrast. So so if we just start with this basis, what does Scripture actually tell us it will do? So we're going to look at a little bit of bibliology tonight, because I actually think this is faith. Like, I I would suggest to you that the core disease— running rampant through the American church and probably the worldwide church is that we simply just don't trust God's word to mediate our fellowship with our savior and our king. And so we want something more. Maybe we're like the military man who 50 years ago was only able to write letters back and forth to his beloved back in the states and he's longing for the personal experience of returning home and hugging her and holding her and talking with her and seeing her, touching her, knowing her, is holding his heart. We get that relationally. And it's almost as though the Christian is saying, I feel like i am just got these dry, dusty letters. And I can't wait to experience God personally. That's not a bad desire. But what does the Lord tell us? (laughs) Maybe you could say it this way. For me to live is Christ and to die is, when do you get to have that good stuff? When you go home. Your citizenship is in heaven. We are are strangers. We are foreigners. we, We do have a limited grace. We don't have the full presence of God, but it is, I would say, enough. We can mediate a true relationship with God and long for more without indicting the Bible is not enough. Okay, so scripture is enough. I have a handful of verses. I'm going to go through these relatively quickly because I, I think the backdoor of the Science and Wonders movement is they're dissatisfied with Scripture, but will not generally acknowledge that publicly. I think Sarah the Young's book actually does so at the beginning in multiple different ways, but it's subtle. Second Timothy 3. You'll notice that highlighted phrase at the end. The, the scriptures are able to do what? They're able to completely shape God's servant. For what? Every good work. Every good work. So when we're talking about what the Bible is able to accomplish, the flow of logic is something like this. All Scripture is God-breathed, is produced by God, and is therefore able to accomplish its designed purpose, which is to teach, reprove, correct, and train. The result of that four-pronged work of Scripture is that you and I, as God's servant, can be equipped for every good work. It's a fairly substantial claim, isn't it? This is, this is what you need, and if you have this, and you get it, and you saturate yourself with it, and you live in it, and you trust it, you are equipped for everything. <clears throat> Boy, I could just, that, that verse alone needs to be preached, and I might pull some of these into Sunday morning at some point in the future here, because our whole church needs to hear this. You know, so when you're sitting at a coffee shop and a 17-year-old girl says, I've been cutting, is the Bible enough? It absolutely is. To equip you to talk to her and to equip her to repent, to deal with it, to get over it in a biblical, godly way that actually fills her responses with a knowledge of how to pursue God's grace. And I would think to enliven her faith so that she actually does it. Getting God's grace. That's amazing. There is no counseling book that could claim with any honesty that hope. None. Okay, so my slides are not advancing. There we go. Um 2 Peter 1, 3. This is a little more implicit. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to, now the point of this phrase here is a life of godliness. I don't think he's trying to separate life and godliness. as two distinct things. But all that pertains to living out godliness, all of it, has been given to us by the Lord. So as we look at what like God has done, how he's done it, even just this thought. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So if you walk in the law of the Lord, what is your life? Isn't it wonderful to know there will be no surprises? You're not going to get to heaven and God's going to be like, why didn't you? And you're like, wait, what? That's not in your Bible anywhere. Oh, oops. <laughs> like, if you know the scripture and you follow it, you will be absolutely blameless. This suggests that the scripture is sufficient so that your whole entire life, can be prescribed in its text. There is not anything in your life for which scripture does not tell you how to walk in blamelessness. Nothing. So as we go through trials, as we experience victories, as we have new technology like cell phones and internet, as as some future medicine washes over this world and we're trying to figure out the, the, the medical bioethics, God's word tells us how to navigate the treacherous terrain of decisions and wisdom and thoughts and people and relationships with his scriptures. We don't need to have God whisper, hey, take that job. But but that's, in fact, often what people think. Let me use an example, I think probably a little bit more where we can live. Uh, We come to James and it says, if any man lacks wisdom. In fact, let's turn there real quick. I don't want to just go off my memory. I not you guys to see the scriptures. This is probably a more commonly misused one in our type of church environment. Okay. You're in trials. You're in all sorts of difficulty. Life's hitting you. Life hurts. Right? Verse 2, hey, James is not pull punches. I mean, just imagine you're sitting with someone who's brokenhearted. They're hurting. And we're not talking like, uh, you know, in, in job review performance, they don't get a bonus. And they're like, man, I'm really bummed. We're talking about like life hurts. Count it all joy. That is abrupt. But like, like, that's like jumping into ice water. It will shock your system. When you're, you're coming, you're going to be at Starbucks to grab coffee and get comfort. And you're like, man, I'm going through this really hard time. And James looks across the pages of Scripture at you and says, you should rejoice. That sounds incredibly good for you. Why? Because when we have trials of various kinds, they test our faith. And produce steadfastness, verse 4 now. Steadfastness, having its full effect, perfects us and brings us to full maturity so that nothing is lacking in our character. God is doing this to shape us. Okay, so there's more to this. We come to verse 5 then. If any of you lacks wisdom, what do we do? Ask God, who gives it to us generously without reproach? And it will be, but you need to ask in faith. Where does God give us wisdom? Yeah, not your imagination. Unless your imagination is filled with scripture, and that's what's leading it. This is not a verse for, for divine revelation. This is not, should I get the red car or the blue car? God, I'm in this, this soul-distressing situation. I don't know which car to get. God, give me wisdom. The blue car. Wow. All or you have some random conversation with the guys, like, man, red cars get more speeding tickets. Okay, it's the blue car. Yeah, this is not the point. This text is, is a text about gathering wisdom from God's source of it, the Scriptures. This is not a verse for you to sit and ponder and from your imagination find wisdom, but wisdom that comes from God has come from God. Okay, Continue on. Ask in faith. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the seas driven and tossed by the wind— For that person should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. This is a verse that can be used for a type of subjective wisdom searching. And I, I think that's not James's point. I think James's point is that God, using his scripture and using your diligent search for it and prayer for it, God will answer that and teach you in his word so that you know how to act. God being the source of wisdom, Scripture being the way he gives it to us, this is a promise that God will lead you and shepherd you through his word. It's really an incredible promise, I think, about illumination and conviction. All right, moving forward here. The Bible's enough, and it's effective and powerful. This is really, to me, where we need to, probably as a church, just find the pursuit of Scripture enjoyable. James, and he he throws this in as an aside. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I, I can only imagine that the context of James, remember, he's just been talking about trials, is trying to encourage us not to respond to people who use the Scripture against us. And I don't mean badly, necessarily. But have you ever had someone, like, confront you on something, and the first thing out of your mouth is an excuse or an explanation or some reasonable reason for why you did what you did or perhaps you know this there are people that you might be afraid to confront or talk to because their response is often to clap back and challenge you and get angry at you i think that's generally the context here in james so his his admonition to all of us is when someone is talking to you and your response is tempted to speak or tempted toward anger, what should you do? Slow it down, shut your mouth, and listen. For the anger of man does not produce the righteous life God desires. That's the point of the end of that phrase there. Therefore, put away all filthiness. King James here has got to be quoted. And superfluity of naughtiness is the King James phrase that goes there for rampant wickedness. It's one of those phrases, fr- like, how can you not remember that once you read it once? Superfluity of naughtiness. It's like, if, if any of you doesn't, you, don't, you don't believe me, I'm, I know some of you don't. Go ahead and look it up on your phones. It says, therefore put away superfluity of naughtiness, buildingness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is what? Oh, th- this, is, this is proof to the point. Why when someone clobbers me with scripture? Because I need the clobbering because I'm a dummy. And my heart responds with like, you don't understand me. I'm actually doing good. Uh, uh." Why, Why is James saying, Mark, listen. Don't defend. Don't get angry. The Delivery may not have been great. And maybe they had fleshly reasons. But they granted you confrontation with my word listen because it's able to save your soul both the power and past performance of the word for every christian should make our hearts open up to receive god's word whenever it's delivered so don't get angry don't get defensive in fact i'll say later in james three that wisdom that's from above is open to reason it's gentle right? It's peaceable. Why? Because the, the Word of God is so powerful. It does this work. Okay. Psalm 19. One of the, one of the most magnificent texts on Scripture. This is from the Holman. So, so the first six verses are not about Scripture. They're about what? Creation, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. You know what's better than the heavens declaring the glory of God? The Bible. That's the point, Right? Uh, Look at verse 7. The instruction of the Lord is perfect. It is trustworthy. It makes the inexperienced wise. There's two ways to learn. There's kind of the the school of hard knocks. And there's the Bible. If I don't have experience, if I don't have a lot of wisdom, do I want to learn the hard way? Like experience suffering that comes because I'm a dummy? Or do I want to take my inexperience and exchange it for wisdom by reading scripture? So so like you read scripture and it challenges us on issues of laziness and honesty and integrity and neighborliness. Read the book of Proverbs. It's filled with wisdom that saves me from damaging my life through just folly and foolishness and youth and inexperience. But notice the Bible actively makes us wise. The precepts of the Lord are right. They make our heart glad. Suffering people need scripture. You're hurting, you're suffering, and you need comfort. The Bible makes us glad. It reminds us what is worth living for. It reminds us of what God has done for us. It reminds us of eternal things when our life gets filled with the loss of the things that are temporary. Scriptures make us glad. The commandment of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. Why would I ever not want to read and study and get into the Scriptures? It gives light. I, I think that would mean it shines light on life. It gives me an ability to see clearly life. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. I don't think we will ever regret the transforming work of Scripture in all of eternity. Right, it's not like you get to heaven and anything that scripture has shaped you will regret or want to unshape. As it moves us towards Christ likeness, that is all good, eternally good. The ordinance of the Lord are of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, the abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey. So, just a word to most of you, parents, especially as you're raising your children up, scriptures, commands, and restrictions, and admonitions to behave, to do this and not do this, can often be granted to our children as, as kind of a regretful restriction. You know what I'm saying, right? I mean, like, there are certain things where there are laws keeping you from doing fun things. Parents, if you're laying out the scripture and you're laying out God's word and you're doing it with, re, like, giving your children regret or, or making it seem like God is keeping from them something good. You're doing the scripture a disservice. And you and God disagree about it. Like, are laws good? Probably, like, one of the most simple illustrations I've seen of this is I really don't like a lot of our traffic laws. I already mentioned that a little bit. But then when you go to a foreign country and you see guys who don't really do the traffic laws, and it takes you like six hours to go ten miles, and every intersection is a heart-pounding experience of chicken from multitudes of directions, you realize that traffic lights and speed limits are really, really good and efficient and get us there faster and safer. Really, have you ever seen those pictures of like third world driving It's terrifying. God's laws organize and put us into a position to be like him and to treat others like he would want us to treat them. And that is good for us and them. In addition, your servant is warned by them. There's great reward in God's word. Scripture is, is so good for us. Luke 16. This is one of the most compelling proofs of the power of Scripture. This is the rich man and Lazarus. This is Jesus Christ. And he is giving this illustration, whether it's a true-to-fact story, we're a little uncertain because this is a very odd parable. He doesn't do this type of work in most of his parables, so there is a lot of debate and ink spilled about whether or not this is the Lord giving us insight into real people or whether he is fabricating something that is real to life but not true because it's never happened type of thing. Does that make sense? Like his parables aren't about, like, science fiction fantasy type stuff that's not real. I mean, there's no, like, weird things that aren't true. It's like a Samaritan and robbers. Those are real things that they lived with in their country. Okay, so, so it could be either one of these. But Jesus, in verse 31, says that if the brothers of the rich man who's now suffering in torment— so this rich man having asked um, Abraham to send back a man from the dead to, to witness, I mean, that would be pretty compelling, right? <laughs> you have an unsaved neighbor, they say something like, I would believe if my, if my dad who is passed away would come back to life and tell me to believe, then I would believe. Something along those lines. Abraham's answer, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, who's that? He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. The first five books of the Bible are the books of Moses. The prophets, we would know them mostly as the latter books of the, of the Scriptures. If, if they've not listened to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise them from the dead. This is an argument that, that kind of like lesser to greater, right? Or maybe greater to lesser. Like they have this great witness, and if they've rejected this great witness, The witness of a real-life miracle of people they know, of a resurrection of the dead, is less convincing, less powerful than the Scripture itself. Now, I'm thinking about, like, on a Sunday morning, or maybe with you, with your, your junior high, reading the Scriptures is a more compelling testimony Of God's power than a resurrection in that person's life like sometimes we just want the Bible to like wake the dead and were there to be a real resurrection it would be less convincing than the scripture itself now this is not because the words are magical or inherently powerful why is it that scripture is so powerful because why Okay, it's God's. Can you guys read that? I realize I, I, I kind of shrunk the font to get it all up there. Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose." It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, this tells me a few things about God's word. First, God has not merely written scripture as revelation, but revelation with purpose. He knows exactly what he's doing, but I would think theologically then, what we have is the ministry of the Holy Spirit accompanying the word of God enlivening the hearts of those who hear it giving eyes and conviction to those who are under its ministry. that the Word of God is not just a thing, absent of the presence of God. It's actually always like a messenger sent with the purpose of the one who sends it, accomplishing the very thing God sends it to do. James says the implanted word is able to save. Second Timothy 314 and 15 Paul tells Timothy to stay in the scriptures because it is, able to make one wise to salvation read your bibles get in the scriptures this is how god speaks to us And just just a little caveat the bible is not infinite just in case some of us like have a, a, a theological concern that the bible says everything about everything it doesn't in fact these two verses indicate it doesn't the secret things belong to god but the things revealed belong to us there's a difference God knows stuff that he didn't tell us. It, it kind of makes sense. God's infinite. If he tried to send us a book that told us everything he thought, there'd be nowhere in the universe for us to live. We'd be crowded out by the pages of that book. Something similar is what John says here. Uh, he, it's like he gets to the end of writing this, and he's written this just masterpiece, unveiling the word so that we might have eternal life. But you can almost feel John's inadequacy or the feeling of John's inadequacy that he seems to write at the end. He's he's finalizing this gospel in which he's written about his beloved Savior. And he gets to the end and he says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Because you know he's like, oh, I could have said that. I probably should have said, oh. I don't know if he ever said should have, but he definitely probably had a pile of stories running through his heart and his memory that he really wished he could give to us. I so man, if I did that, <laughs> libraries would run out of room, which indicates to me there's a lot of room of things that could be written that we don't have that we have to wait until heaven to get to know. So, so your Bible is not an encyclopedia that tells you everything about everything. It doesn't tell you everything about God. It doesn't tell you everything about Jesus and what he did on this earth. It does tell you all that you need to know for life and godliness. It does tell you all you need to know to be equipped for every good work. It does give you enough that you would know how to be saved. The Bible lacks nothing needed for godliness. The Bible is true in all that it says and claims. Right, the, the word of the Lord is perfect. His statutes and judgments are right. So don't add to the Bible what it does not say. You're to look at the Pharisees, they, they do this. And Jesus says, in vain they worship me, teaching as, as doctrine the commandments of men. And he is condemning them because they've added to Scripture things that Scripture does not say. So one of the things I think we need to be very careful of making sin something the Bible does not say is sin. Now, we might think something is unwise. We might use a whole bunch of principles to extrapolate it. Um, so I, I think we would understand that there's an implication that text can have. So don't get too simplistic with this. But at the same time, we want to sometimes say things are wrong that aren't wrong. We want to say sometimes you need to do things that the Bible doesn't say you need to do. Proverbs 30. Verses 5 and 6, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you. Now, I have been rebuked. I do not want the Lord to rebuke me. I have no idea what that would look like, but I don't think that's. I think Proverbs is writing this because he's saying, you don't want that. So, you don't want that. So, do not. Please, please do not remove from the Bible what God has said. Um, reminds me of the, has anyone heard of the adulterous version of the Bible? I think it's like the 1631 version of the, new, uh, of the King James. It says, thou shalt commit adultery. So, I have, I have good, good provenance in typos like this. It only lasted for one year, and they came out with a brand new edition the next year, because you can imagine where that went. Revelation twenty two eighteen through 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in his book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. This would be one of the ways I would assume theologically that, or I shouldn't assume, I think theologically we should derive from this a, um, a full canon of scripture. We're not missing any books. Because God has warned, and I think thereby, through providence, has guarded his word from addition or subtraction. Say Young, I really want to add the right word in there before you take a picture of that slide. It's going to be forever immortalized. Do remove from God's word. And then number five, no sin or duties are unmentioned in scripture, either explicit or implicitly. So, you're not going to get to heaven and find out that you violated God's word. And you didn't, Lord, you shouldn't say it. You're not going to find out in heaven that you violated God's will by doing something that he never even talked about in his word or not doing it, okay? Like, the scripture says all it needs to say for you to know that everything you are doing or all the things you're abstaining from doing is pleasing to the Lord. You're not going to get to heaven and find out there's a secret list. You're not going to get to heaven and and find out, like, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. I, I didn't mean to say that. You didn't, you didn't have to sweat that one out. The scripture never, never challenges us to do something or forbids something that's unnecessary or unimportant for us to concern ourselves with. Okay. I don't have time uh, to, to go where I wanted to go, which was talk a little bit about how I think this is a theological foundation for us to work through some of the issues with tongues and prophecy as it's expressed in the modern thing. So this is just a tease in two weeks where we're going to be. Um, I might, I might be able to pull up some better videos by then because I, I do want to talk about the modern kind of charismatic expressions um, that I think, yes, I know you guys all want to see uh, the Fire Tunnel of Todd, but we're not going to see that now. We're going to go to prayer time so that we have, we have time to um, plead for the Lord's mercy and grace for our church family. So let's do this. I'm going to, I'm going to take the first five minutes to take requests. And then I'm going to give you, hopefully, the next 10 to 15 for you to pray in smaller groups. Okay, so...